It's now time for Skagit Talks, featuring local news, interviews, and information from around the valley, created with the help of Skagit County community volunteers. Now, KSVR 91.7 presents Skagit Talks. Today is a discussion with Peter Frome, author of Indian Creek Chronicle, a memoir. He talks about his adventure in the Montana wilderness as a naive young man in 1978 to 1979 during a hard winter. In the Northwest News Report, Family Attorney Questions Investigators Narrative in Shooting of Antifa Supporter Michael Rennell. Farmworker Group's Concerned Citizenship Bill Favors Growers. All this and more in today's edition. Now, Peter Frome, author. This is Ann Bodle Nash for Skagit Talks. In 1993, Pete Fromm published a memoir entitled The Indian Creek Chronicles, detailing his time spent in the wilderness near the border of Idaho and Montana near the Selway River along Indian Creek. His task was to keep a small stream ice-free during the winter so that salmon eggs placed by the Idaho Fish and Wildlife Department could grow. It was a sort of naturalized hatchery project in an attempt to bring salmon back more than 40 years ago. He lived in a wall tent with his dog, And the notes taken during his seven months of isolation, snow, cold, and experience lived became this rich narrative. The book launched his career as a writer. It was deemed the Pacific Northwest Booksellers Book of the Year, the first of three times he has been so awarded. In addition, he's written two novels and five short story collections, several of which have been made into films. And he is now the author of the first book chosen for the University of Montana Alumni Book Club, And as a fellow Montana alum, I'm so pleased to have fallen into this book and this author, although I'd heard of him for years. And I welcome Pete Fromm to the program. Thank you for joining us, Pete. Oh, my pleasure. As a fellow University of Montana grad and a student of the creative writing program, I'm encouraged by your example that the jobs we take and the experiences we endure can occasionally become beautiful literature. And your book is a long look at a part of the country most of us only imagine. And in your book, you um, detail some of the romantic accounts of the West that you had read before accepting this job in the middle of kind of nowhere. Um, How similar was your experience to what you thought you might find having read those books? Um, Practically not at all similar. Um, I've been reading a lot of mountain man stories, and most of those are so romanticized that, well, as a 19-year-old, it made me think, wouldn't it be great to be standing in an icy pond uh, setting a trap for a beaver? Um, And no, it's not. It's uh, (laughs) very painful. It's miserable. And I had no need for a beaver. (laughs) or to set a trap for one. Uh, but they made it sound like this life of unbridled freedom and um, you know, the ability to do whatever you wanted. And uh, which was, I did find some truth to that. I had, I had nothing that I was, my job required five minutes a day and the rest of the time was completely mine free to do whatever I wanted. I just had no idea that there was really nothing to do. At (laughs) least that's how it struck me at first. The longer, so what month did you start this journey? 
you were in Missoula as a student when you got the call about the job, correct? Right. I, I was uh, on the swim team uh, for two years, and then the swim team was cut. And starting my third year of school, a friend told me about this job. And I called the uh, fish biologist for Idaho immediately and said, I'll take it. And he tried to slow me down and say, you know, you're going to be in the wilderness 60 miles from the nearest person or plowed road for seven months. Um, are, are you sure? And I said, yeah, that, that sounds really great. And I didn't know what a wall tent was. I had no idea where the Selway River was. Um, I barely traveled outside of campus in my two years in Missoula. I grew up in Wisconsin. Um, but I, I jumped at it. And he said, you have two weeks to get together your food and all your supplies. And uh, I, they picked me up about the second week in October and drove me into the woods, set up my tent and left me there. I was intrigued in the book about uh, your the food you took with you and the supplies you took with you. I think you thought you were going to be spending a lot of time trapping and hunting and killing animals for food and, and eating your canned goods otherwise. Um, it, talk about the trapping. I mean, you've just mentioned it previously a few minutes ago, but did the, was there, were there animals to trap and were you any good at it? And did you finally <laughs> think it wasn't worth the trouble? No, of course I was no good at it. I had no no idea. Um, and I did have this idea that like the mountain men, I would you know hunt for my food and I'd never hunted before. Um, I'd never owned a gun. Uh, I, I had a roommate who was very into that. He, he's the guy who set me off on reading all these mountain man books and he bought traps for me and um, I found a uh, a kit for an old muzzle loader gun like the mountain men had and i figured that's what i would hunt with um i'd never even cooked for myself uh, <laughs> i went straight from mom's house to the, the food service at, at missoula and so to buy seven months worth of food uh was a ridiculous proposition uh, i couldn't bring frozen food because it would thaw i couldn't bring food that would freeze because it would so that pretty much left me with dried food um, and when you never even if you have cooked a little bit to just how much will i need for seven months um, so i threw a 50 pound bag of beans on the cart and thought well it'd be terrible to run out so and the mountain men were always eating beans i, I had no idea how to cook a bean uh, so i threw another 50 pound bag on and then another one, and then I saw rice, so threw three bags of rice onto the cart. And beyond that, I got some canned corn, some canned peas, and planned to dig a hole, a cache in the ground to keep those from freezing. And um, other than that, it was pretty much up to my, my hunting skills, which had, did not exist. But you got pretty good at shooting grouse. Yes, it sounds like. Yes, I, I grouse in, in those little red tree squirrels. I ate a lot of those, um, and 
they I, I, I hardly trapped at all. Um, there were you could set traps for pine marten. Um, I did that for a little bit. Never saw a pine marten. Um, and then the biologist asked me to trap anything that was getting into the uh, salmon channel, which is where they planted two two million eggs. And he said, you know, if there's otters that get in there, kill them. Raccoons, anything. Um, he, he was he was an odd duck. Uh, he said the birds, the dippers, the water oozels, you know, wipe them out if you can, because they'll eat those eggs. And I, I couldn't bring myself to do that. But one day I did trap a raccoon and I felt so terrible for this poor animal stuck in this leg hole trap that I, that was the only animal I trapped. That was, that was the end of that. Well, adventure stories like, I mean, yours, I was going to say are rare anymore, contemporary stories. And what year exactly were you there? The winter of 78, 79. 78, 79, yeah. It turned out it's still the winter that uh, the weather people use as the benchmark for a really hard winter. Um, we haven't the- had this, this much this much prolonged cold since the winter of 78, 79. <laughs> oh, you must feel proud to know you survived that. <laughs> yeah, I always walk around slapping myself on the chest going, yeah, yeah, it's still not as bad as mine. Um, <laughs> Um, what part of your job was to record the coldest and the warmest temperature of each day? Is that correct? Yes. What was the coldest temperature you were living in? Forty-two below. That's pretty chilly. Um, and inside the wall tent, then they gave me a really little uh, wood stove that had no fire brick in it or anything. It was just a sixteenth inch of steel, so it would hold a fire for about two hours. And if I didn't get up in the middle of the night several times to keep the fire going, um, it quickly cooled off. And I had a thermometer inside the tent, and the coldest it was when I had to get up in the morning was 13 below in the tent. And um, I had sorrel boots, and I'd have to sort of stamp on those to get them smushed into a position where I could put fit my foot in and then just thaw them with the heat of my feet um, while I built the fire back up. And in those temperatures, I could get the tent to about 50 inside. You were Uh, living the life. Oh, yeah. (laughs) What could be better? Uh, How did the writing of the Indian Creek Chronicles, Chronicles change the trajectory of your life? Oh, um, I mean, had well, you I, had you always planned to be a writer? No, never, n- never. Uh, if if someone had told me that I would be a writer someday, I, I would have laughed at them. Um, I took just an attempt to get the minimum required number of credits to graduate. I took a uh, introduction to creative writing class because it was the only class that would fit into my schedule. And that turned out to be with Bill Kittredge as the teacher. Mm-hmm. And we had to write one short story. And oddly enough, I wrote a short story about a guy who lives out in the woods in the middle of the winter. And um, he read the story out loud to the class and mm-hmm. just said, Ooh, who wrote this? And um, 
after talking about it for a while, he said, I don't know, have any idea who you are, or what you do, but you could do this for a living. And um, I thought of all the writers I knew, which were none, um, <laughs> that was a ridiculous thing to say. So I became a park ranger. Uh, but that, <clears throat> that writing of, of that one short story was like the most intense daydreaming I'd ever had. It was... I, I could see everything. I could smell it. I could see the ponderosa bark and the way that the, the fire at night cuts off everything beyond the first tree that it hits. It's just utter blackness out there. And, uh, the smoke was staying in my eyes. And I just thought, I will, this is, this is fun. I want to do that. So I, I just kept writing on my own time from then on. And, um, I wrote a collection of short stories that was published the year before Indian Creek and as short story collections do, it went fairly unnoticed. And then Indian Creek uh, went, you know, won that first PNBA award and it got some readership and it got publishers calling me. Um, and it's, you know, it's still in print however many years later, um, mm. almost 30. And so it's it was it was a big life changer for me for writing. Absolutely, who's writing nature based adventure stories set in Montana now? I I have this feeling like you're part of that generation of male writers that's still writing, but kind of almost gone. Who? Else, what other contemporary writers do you hang out with or know that are writing <laughs> adventure stories? Uh, none. <laughs> um, I don't hang out with a lot of writers, though. Uh, the I really can't think of one. Um, <clears throat> Bryce Andrews has written about working on a ranch and um, you know having run-ins with grizzlies and stuff. And they're kind of an adventure story in that way. Um, he's quite good. Um, really, I don't read a lot of. Uh, that's that type of stuff uh, it's sort of a personal thing that you know I, I do that so i'd rather do it than read about somebody else doing it sure uh do you ever play <laughs> my favorite montana songs the wild montana skies by john denver and emmy lou harris um i play that on my cd player and i play merle haggard's big city do you know those songs? I know them, but they're, they're, I wouldn't say they're on my playlist. <laughs> you should turn them on when you're driving on I-90, headed to Montana or around Montana, or Jerry Jeff Walker's Night Rider's Lament. Oh, one of my absolute favorites. Yeah, well, this is what happens when you get caught up in the romance of Montana, I'm afraid. <laughs> yeah. Whatever form it takes for any of us, boy. Are, what are you working on right now? Anything? Just living. Yes, I just finished a novel. Uh, uh, it just sold in France, actually. And um, Indian Creek is is a big hit in France. It has mm -hmm. been for twelve years now. Um, they love the idea of that kind of mythic idea of the American West. Yes, they do. Uh, and this new novel is called Lake Nowhere, and is set actually in the wilderness in Canada, in the canoe wilderness. Has it been published in English? No, it's just just start just went out uh, 
two publishers in the last couple of weeks. So haven't heard anything from the U.S. yet. Okay. Okay. Well, it's such a pleasure to have you here. I want to um, encourage people to read Indian Creek Chronicles sometime when they're looking for a little touch of adventure and they're interested in the wilderness, which I'm sure has changed some since you were there, but it's still a wild place. Oh, very much so. Yeah. Well, I wish you well, and I really appreciate you joining us today and hope my readers will remember the name Pete from as they continue to read in their life. And I wish you well and success with, with uh, your new book and all the rest that you will do. It's wonderful. Well, thanks very much, Anna. My pleasure. You're so welcome. This is Ann Bottle Nash for Skagit Talks. Here's the Northwest News Report. Attorneys for the family of self-proclaimed anti-fascist protesters say an investigative account of his death last year, quote, strains credulity. Oregon Public Broadcasting's Conrad Wilson reports. Members of a U.S. Marshals Task Force shot Michael Rynell last September. Police say days earlier he killed a far-right demonstrator in downtown Portland. Last week, the Thurston County Sheriff's Office issued a summary of its investigation into Rynell's killing. It said Rynell initiated an exchange of gunfire with police. Investigators were not able to recover a bullet to confirm Rynell fired his weapon at officers. They did find a 380 bullet casing inside the car that matched Rynell's gun. After he died, police found Rynell's 380 pistol inside his pants pocket. Investigators say Rynell shot and put the gun away as police returned fire. Fred Langer is a Seattle lawyer working for Rynell's family. The narrative that the police are putting out doesn't make any sense. Prosecutors are still reviewing the shooting. The full investigative report has not been released. I'm Conrad Wilson in Portland. The U.S. House has passed the Farm Workforce Modernization Act, setting up a path to citizenship for immigrant farm workers. But some groups representing those workers say it would put too much power in the hands of the agriculture industry. If the bill passes, workers with at least a decade of experience would be eligible for a green card after four years, and those with less experience would be eligible after eight years. Citizenship applications would rely on employers for verification. Rosalinda Guillen is the head of the Washington State-based farm worker advocacy group, Community to Community Development. At a time when we could go progressive and move closer to racial justice, we're actually accepting the industry's priorities instead of the farm worker family's priorities. The bill received support from all but one Democrat in the House, as well as 30 Republicans. One of the top co-sponsors is Washington Representative Dan Newhouse, a Republican and farm owner in Yakima Valley. Newhouse's office did respond to a request for comment. The bill would also expand H-2A, a program that provides guest workers from other countries to farms. It would cap wages to workers in that program for a year. David Bacon, a journalist and immigrant rights activist, says the H-2A program has barred participants from unionizing, an issue the bill in Congress doesn't address. That is the one method that people historically have used to try to raise low wages and end poverty in rural areas. But the reality of it is when H-2A workers try to organize, and this has happened repeatedly, they get fired, they get legally deported, and they get blacklisted so that they can't come in future years. Farm workers in Washington state have been deemed essential during the pandemic. 
although Guillen notes they haven't necessarily been protected. Central Washington, home to much of the state's agriculture, has seen some of the biggest COVID-19 outbreaks in the past year. She wants congressional leaders to recognize their work during the pandemic by scrapping this bill and starting over. Are we essential? Then make this legalization process instant, make it quick, make it permanent. This story from the Washington News Service for KSVR. Here's 2021 Talks, following our democracy in historic times. Welcome to 2021 Talks, where we are following our democracy in historic times. Getting vaccinated is a moral obligation, one that can save your life and the lives of others. As Christians around the world celebrated Easter Sunday, President Joe Biden cautioned in a video message, COVID-19 is not gone. By getting vaccinated and encouraging your congregations and your communities to get vaccinated, we not only can beat this virus, we can also haste the day when we can celebrate the holidays together again. Biden spent the weekend with his family at Camp David. Flags at federal buildings will be flown at half-staff until tomorrow night to honor U.S. Capitol Police Officer William Evans, killed Friday in an attack at a checkpoint. Police say 25-year-old Noah Green rammed his car into Evans and another officer before he was fatally shot. Georgia Governor Brian Kemp lashed out against cancel culture Saturday after Major League Baseball pulled its 2021 All-Star Game out of Atlanta to protest the state's new voting law. They don't care about jobs, they don't care about our communities, and they certainly don't care about access to the ballot box. Because if they did, Major League Baseball would have announced that they were moving their headquarters from New York. Kemp argued New York has stricter voting laws with just 10 days of early voting compared to Georgia's 17. MLB said the move was, quote, the best way to demonstrate our values as a sport, unquote. Coca-Cola and Delta Airlines also criticized the law. A New York Times investigation found former President Donald Trump's website made recurring, rather than one-time donations, the default choice for donors in the final weeks of the campaign, only disclosed in the fine print. The campaign issued more than $122 million in refunds, about 11 percent of overall money raised. Amid rising political polarization, a bipartisan House panel is working behind the scenes to make Congress more efficient and effective. At its first meeting of 2021, the Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress discussed improving staff diversity. Alexia Jordan, a fellow at the Center for a New American Security, told the panel that gender and race are not the only markers for diversity. Frankly, I don't want an intern trying to advise me about childcare. I want a mom with kids to help us with childcare legislation. I don't want a Manhattanite trying to inform me about agricultural policies, which means I don't want to hear any more about diversity being hiring one liberal or one conservative from Harvard. The nonprofit Pay Our Interns found more than three quarters of paid congressional interns are white. Executive Director Carlos Mark Vera says congressional internships are a pipeline for future public policy positions. Some people might be like, who cares if interns are paid or not? Well, that intern is now Speaker Pelosi. Vice President Kamala Harris, in her book, she writes about being an intern in the Senate office she then held. Vera's group is calling for expanded funding for hiring and increased recruitment from communities of color. For Pacifica Network and Public News Service, I'm Mary Sherman. Thanks for listening. Here's the national news. The Public News Service Daily Newscast for April 5th, 2021. I'm Mike Clifford. Testimony resumes this morning in the trial of Derek Chauvin, the former Minneapolis police officer charged with killing George Floyd. Mike Mullen tells us some of the early testimony has renewed conversation about the historical mistreatment of black people in the U.S. 
While watching the court proceedings might be traumatic for some, Talisa Carter, a criminologist who teaches race and justice at American University, says it can help propel uncomfortable but important conversations about these issues. She sees the case as confirming what scholars have long talked about. There's bodies of literature that support the realities that these people are talking about. There's bodies of literature that discuss the intersection of being a black man, interacting with the police, having addiction issues. She hopes anyone watching the trial reflects on these more complex topics rather than simply taking sides. Racial and legal scholars predict the outcome of the case will serve as a defining moment in U.S. history. And from delayed treatment to possible links to impaired hearing, the COVID pandemic has had an impact on common problems affecting millions of people. While COVID is most known for affecting the lungs, reports have linked COVID infections to hearing loss. About 48 million Americans have some level of hearing loss, but according to the Hearing Loss Association of America, people wait an average of seven years before getting treatment. Hearing specialists say the pandemic has contributed to that delay. Dr. Andrew Resnick is an audiologist with a private practice in New York City who noticed a significant decline in the number of people seeking prevention and treatment last year during the height of the pandemic. There's no question that far fewer people were coming in. We see mostly older people and our patient base seem to be very, very concerned about going out. Although hearing tests performed by a licensed audiologist are more precise, a growing number of websites are helping fill the gap by doing preliminary hearing evaluations online. I'm Andrea Sears reporting. Meantime, April is World Autism Acceptance Month. Groups that advocate for people on the autism spectrum say they want more than public awareness, especially with the inequalities deepened by the pandemic. Zoe Gross is with the Autism Self-Advocacy Network. They're still not sort of paying attention to people with disabilities and giving that higher priority that our community needs based on our risk. People really feel like the pandemic has brought home the way society devalues the lives of people with disabilities. According to the network's COVID-19 tracker of people living with disabilities in congregate settings, Florida has the highest case numbers in the U.S. As of today, all Florida residents are eligible to receive any COVID-19 vaccine. This is PNS. The United States House has passed the Foreign Workplace Modernization Act, setting up a path to citizenship for immigrant farm workers. But Eric Teganoff reports some groups representing those workers say it would put too much power in the hands of the agriculture industry. If the bill passes, workers with at least a decade of experience would be eligible for a green card after four years, and those with less experience would be eligible after eight years. Citizenship applications would rely on employers for verification. Rosalinda Guillen is head of the Washington State-based farm worker advocacy group Community to Community Development. At a time when we could go progressive and move closer to racial justice, we're actually accepting the industry's priorities instead of the farm worker families' priorities. The bill received support from all but one Democrat in the House, as well as 30 Republicans. One of the top co-sponsors is Washington Representative Dan Newhouse, a Republican and farm owner in the Yakima Valley. Newhouse's office did not respond to a request for comment. Enrollment in Colorado's colleges and universities has dropped during the coronavirus pandemic. Educators say the impacts could be felt throughout the state's economy for years to come.
Dr. Angie Pachoni with the Colorado Department of Higher Education says many students decided to hit the pause button on their education, and she fears many may not return to complete their degree. Enrollment matters because students who stop out or drop out very, very rarely return to get their diploma. That means that they will not maximize their earning potential and it doesn't set them up for success in the future. When campuses were forced to shut down, Pachoni says first generation and students of color in particular lost access to the college experience they looked forward to, including critical bonding time with their peers. Many also lost jobs and had to make difficult decisions, with some turning to less expensive two-year institutions where you don't have to live on campus to save money. I'm Eric Galatis. Finally, Mark Richardson tells us Interior Secretary Deb Holland has created a new law enforcement unit to put renewed focus on resolving the cases of Native Americans who are missing or have been killed. Under the Bureau of Indian Affairs Office of Justice Services, the Missing and Murdered Unit will coordinate across departments and agencies to pursue thousands of unresolved cases. A majority involve indigenous women, and Angel Charlie, with the Coalition to Stop Violence Against Native Women, says the move spotlights an issue that's been on the back burner for too long. Secretary Holland is addressing it on the infrastructure level, and then organizations like ours continue to do that grassroots organizing, supporting community and family. Holland is a former U.S. representative from New Mexico and a member of the Laguna Pueblo tribe. This is Mike Clifford. Thank you for starting your week with Public News Service. Member and listener supported. Heard on some of the nation's most interesting radio stations and online at publicnewsservice.org.